You're listening to a special serialized podcast of I Like That Story called Dead Air, a 12-episode recording of a book I wrote under the pen name J.J. Gould. It will include a commentary afterwards and some of the creative processes. For hardcover information on Dead Air or its companion novels, Dead Heat and Dead End, you may go to my website, ilikethatstory.net. And hang around at the end of the episode for some comments I think you'll find interesting. This is episode number two of 12, A Dream Comes to Dancing. In the dying town of Dancing, South Dakota, salvation comes in the form of a rich retired basketball player who promises to build a gaming casino and hunter's paradise. The only person suspicious of his motives is a down-and-out reporter from the local radio station, and the only evidence he has is a garbled message recorded by accident by a scared and desperate heiress. Episode number two of Dead Air. Chapter five, Dormeyer. He might have even found it comical if he didn't have a stiff neck and a hangover. He had a stiff neck because the nearest airport was in Pierre, the capital, a village of maybe 10,000, with a runway so minuscule no wide body could land on it. So he was stuck in some turboprop bush plane with a pilot that looked like he graduated from high school last year and a first-class section that consisted of two seats, 110 decibels of prop noise, and a flight attendant that looked like the pilot's prom date. He had the hangover because he always got a hangover from red wine, and that was the only thing the crummy concierge at the Pier Holiday Inn could find him when he checked in at one o'clock that morning. Now it was about nine in the morning. Dormeyer and the rest of the group were about halfway into the two-hour drive. The ten-year-old limo squeaked and clattered over the patched road, which stretched flat and featureless off to the edge of nowhere. To emphasize the point, an honest-to-God tumbleweed blew across the road in front of the limo. Reese got a big kick out of that. Hey, check that out! Is that a tumbleweed? Reese had been with him for years, probably the closest part of his entourage, maybe even a friend, certainly a pain in the ass. Two of Reese's irritating qualities were that he never seemed to get a hangover and he talked too much, especially in the morning. Look at that shit! Reese had finally noticed the tumbleweeds and started pointing them out, some stuck in drifts of lingering snow, others just piled up all along the fence line as far as the eye could see. Then Reese started singing about a tumbling tumbleweed. When he started to yodel, Dormeyer told him to shut up. Shit, it was depressing. The things he did to get ahead, to gain an advantage. Why does everything have to be so hard? He considered how his life had taken a downward turn since the glory days. Ten years before, his picture was in Times Square, 150 feet high, but today he was schmoozing a bunch of hicks in flyover land. He turned the diamond and gold championship ring around an enormous finger absently, wondering why he needed to be here. He already had accumulated wealth, was richer than his prick of a father had ever been, 
But here he was, out grubbing for more money. No, not just money. Freedom. He glanced across the limo at Marie, the cause of his misery, staring out the window with that stupid, bored expression she usually had. No, being here was not pleasant, not at all, but it was necessary, and perhaps the last unpleasant thing he would ever have to do, and that made everything worth it. He ran over the plan again. He felt for the stiff envelope of cash in his breast pocket to make sure it was still there. Thirty thou should be enough. The plan was simple, but even simple plans had to be executed properly. It had to be good, or the cops wouldn't swallow it, and they had to swallow it. Maybe not forever, but at least for a week, maybe two tops. And if he learned anything, the bigger the lie, well, the easier it was to swallow. It was Dormeyer's last season, and he was mostly just going through the motions. For nine years with the Celtics, he'd been an okay shooter, better on defense, great off the boards, and truly artistic with his elbows when the refs weren't looking. He didn't need the money. His dad owned a shipping business, and his grandmother had left him a trust when he was 18. But early on, he'd realized that being rich was good, but being rich and famous made it easier to get richer and being richer was definitely better. He also learned that as far as most people were concerned, being infamous was about as good as being famous. And he was definitely infamous. An enforcer, a guy who got paid to play dirty, and got paid pretty well. The truth was, he liked it. Violence was funny that way. At home, behind closed doors, he could get beaten by a belt by a rich and influential father, and it was called discipline. On the street, someone could be arrested for the same thing because it was called assault. But on the court, it was another thing altogether. Here, he'd get a foul, maybe a technical, and 15 seconds of fame on a highlight reel. And that night, he was gunning for another 15 seconds. The kid was cocky. Twenty years old, dropping out of college and going to make big bucks right away. He was a second-round draft pick, a big risk who was paying off, on the way to being a top-five rookie, a lot of flash, a media darling. A column on the sports page of the local paper talked about his rough childhood and how he was going to pay back his mom for all her sacrifices by buying her a house and how she made sure she would be courtside at tonight's game. How touching. The kid, what was his name, was tough to defend, all right. He had legs like springs and long, too, like trying to run around a fence. He didn't trash talk, but wore a look that said, You tired, old man? That pissed Dormeyer off, but he was patient, and in the middle of the third, he caught the kid as he was driving the paint, lifting for a layup. Dormeyer jumped at a split second later and caught him in midair, their legs and arms tangled, and as they fell, he twisted, locking his leg around the kid's knee. The crack was like a rifle shot. The kid's kneecap hit first, the full weight of both of them driving it into the court. Twisting himself free, he accidentally wrenched the damaged knee around, messing with some tendons and cartilage. The kid screamed, 
and the officials called a timeout. Horrible. So horrible, it would be played several times a day for the next week on TV. As the trainers ran to the court, he took a quick moment to cradle the kid's face in his enormous hands. That shot would make it on the news, too, the old veteran with a heart of gold. What the cameras didn't catch was much closer. He tenderly wiped some tears away and whispered something only the kid could hear. Hey, kid, say hi to your mom for me. Chapter 6. Marie Dormeyer She was dead. The fact did not make her afraid or even sorry, really. In a strange way, it gave her a sense of peace, relief even. For seven years, she had known that her marriage to John Dormeyer would not end well. She'd probably known it even before they were married. But he was a hard person to say no to, even if the end result was her misery. Not just hers. She had seen others fall into the same trap. Men seemed unable to not do whatever John wanted. His money and his fame were a big part of that. His size was another. People who got close to him seemed to shrink and lose power. It certainly had been true for her. Funny how her life, once filled with such promise, was turning out like this. She had money herself, and beauty, and a number of willing suitors. But when John Dormeyer loomed over her that first time, he seemed to suck the air out of the room, and she was no longer in control of anything. Her wealth was hers, in the form of stock from a wealthy grandfather. Its exact amount she really didn't know or care about. Millions, maybe hundreds of millions. Frankly, it was all more than she needed. The family had houses all over the place. So the money was only really used for parties and vacations and trips and whatever she needed to avoid boredom as best as she could. But the money was important to John. He pored over the paperwork with lawyers and investment experts, plotting and scheming. She did not have the least bit of interest in any of it, but she did have a sense that whatever he was trying to do, he couldn't get done. She knew money was important to him in general, and her money was important to him in particular, and because of the way he treated her, she also knew that for whatever reason, he could not get to her money. And then? That changed. He came back from a hunting trip somewhere out west, and he was different. Relaxed wasn't the word. Maybe, maybe focused like he had solved a problem and was just waiting for its resolution. And because money was all he was concerned about, she knew instinctively that he must have figured out how to get to hers and get away with it. Then began a sort of waiting game. He treated her differently, almost kindly, like when he used to have to sign autographs for sick kids at the hospital. And she figured it out, too, just like those sick kids did, kids who heard doctors whispering behind closed doors and figured out for themselves that they were dying. Only in her case, the whisperings weren't about treatment and doctors and cancer. They were about John and money and murder. Chapter 7. Estelle Her name was Estelle Romano, and she was among the very best imaging professionals in the country. She told her clients she was a branding consultant, 
She told her friends she polished turds. And that was why she had ridden to dancing half an hour earlier in the back of an old limo that stank of stale cigarette smoke and avoided the creepy smile of the guy they called Reese. She shuddered involuntarily at the memory and subconsciously pulled her skirt down half an inch as she stood behind the platform. Should have wore the gray business suit. The suit was probably too formal for the occasion, but it also came down to mid-calf, and it would have avoided Reese staring across the limo at her knees for two hours. What a creep. She shook it off and focused on the matter at hand, looking around the dancing convention center. Depressing. The colors were at least thirty years out of style. Dust-covered plastic plants and cheap paintings huddled in dimly lit corners. The carpet wrinkled away from the walls and smelled vaguely of spilled beer and disinfectant. Oh, well. She shrugged her shoulders and put her game face on. Dark hair that curled in waves framed a face that was attractive enough to disarm men, but wasn't so attractive to make women insecure. Her smile was warm and engaging as she invited people to sit in front of the podium for what she said was a vision of the future. She was paid to make these visions look good, and she did. Her Chicago firm was given $75,000 for this particular vision, the ultimate hunting lodge and gaming casino. All conceptual, she was told, strictly prospectus-type stuff. Easy. Conceptual stuff was her bread and butter. She helped developers across the country show what a shopping mall might look like or how a great football stadium would be before the bond issue, stuff like that. Usually these presentations involved a certain piece of land, but not this time. She was not given details about where exactly this particular casino might be. Could be in town, could be out in the country. Kind of weird. Usually investors nailed down a piece of property first to avoid speculators bidding up the possible real estate, but whatever. The town was a dump. She had left the town a lot like it years before and had spent a lot of effort hiding that fact. Why Dormeyer would want to raise money in a town that obviously had no prospects, oh well, it's his money. She stepped to the podium. Showtime. The lights dimmed and a video played. A collage of shots, a prairie thunderstorm rolling across the plains, prairie grass waving under an impossibly beautiful blue sky, a herd of cattle grazing as the sun set, badlands in the background. Then a Sam Elliott sound-alike said, This is the heartland, a place of vast skies and endless prairie, a place where man can dream big and live free, and no matter where life may take him, he still comes back to hang his hat at the Grand Prairie. The music swelled up from under the voice as the shots changed to cutaways of opulent hunting lodges, luxurious gaming tables, beautiful girls lounging by pools, beautiful girls lounging at bars, and beautiful girls lounging at romantic dinner tables. After ten minutes of that, the music crescendoed as a logo displayed The Grand Prairie in Dancing, South Dakota, a John Dormeyer property. 
Then the man himself, John Big Door Dormeyer, strolled across the screen to lean against the logo with a confident smile and swaggered to match. The music cut off, lights came up, and the crowd of about a hundred and twenty sat there staring, awestruck. Before they could rally, Black Velvet was lifted from easels standing around the perimeter of the stage, each easel showing floor plans, conceptual building sites, color swatches, and design features. A small table featured a table setting for two and a menu she'd lifted from a famous four-star restaurant. Only the name at the top had been changed. Who would know? She spoke smoothly, enthusiastically, with a controlled and excited passion about what the economic impact of a five-star resort would mean to the region. After her spiel, she wrapped up with, And now to answer all your questions, the man with the vision to foresee all of this, Mr. John Dormeyer. That did it. The crowd woke up and started applauding. Even the two blonde reporters with matching hair and dresses seemed caught up in the moment, clapping away and forgetting their professional objectivity. Three men appeared, a man with sunglasses dressed in black, obviously some sort of bodyguard. He had sat next to Reese in the limo and ignored everybody. Reese came second, looking flashy, kind of like maybe he could be famous if you thought about it for a while. He looked at Estelle and grinned as he walked in. She looked away and suppressed a shudder. Of course, between them and physically towering over them was the third man and the reason everybody was there. The big door stepped forward to the podium and crouched over it, bending the mic stand as high as it would go. The crowd laughed appreciatively. And then the questions and answers began. Why dancing? Because he'd hunted pheasants there a few years ago and was haunted by its beauty. Why a lodge and casino? Because all of his friends liked to do that, and he couldn't wait to invite them out. Where? Could be anywhere. Meetings with agents and property owners would begin in the spring. How soon? The sooner, the better. How much? A coy answer, but millions would be needed to realize the scope of his dream. Millions. Everyone in the room with property was wondering how to get a few minutes alone with the big door or his people. Millions! Finally, a buyer had appeared for unwanted property that people had been trying to unload for years. And it didn't seem to matter where the property was. Gears were busily spinning inside every head, thinking about ranches, homes, abandoned buildings that might be sold if... No... Wait, did you hear him talk about his friends? Better keep it for a while and wait for top dollar. People were sitting around grinning foolishly at each other like they just struck oil. Millions. Doris knew she was probably going to be trouble, but hired her anyway. She needed help bussing tables, and this kid sure had the sand anyway. Doris's cafe had been built on two known quantities that applied to all of humanity. People like to eat, and people like to talk. In her place, specialized in both. The food was serviceable, big portions of ordinary food grown in the Midwest. Scalloped potatoes and ham on Monday, roast beef on Tuesday, 
chicken pot pie on Wednesday, lasagna for Thursday, fish filet on Friday. Plus, everyday diners could get pancakes or eggs or hamburgers or fries or mashed potatoes or hash browns. Vegetables were canned corn and canned peas. Occasionally, someone would order a salad. That person would get a surprised look and a wedge of lettuce with a bottle of Thousand Island. Doris opened at 5.30 in the morning with the railroad crowd. The food was good and served fast, including caramel rolls as big as an outstretched hand. Next, the ranchers would come in for the dice games and the coffee, then the other regulars building up to lunch, pie and ice cream, then closing at 2 o'clock sharp, seven days a week. Then the whole place was cleaned from top to bottom. Doris would prepare what she needed for the next day, lock up and be out by four. Every August she took the entire month off and went on vacation somewhere exotic. That year was going to be Hawaii, and she carefully divided the number of meals which she served by the estimated cost of the trip. This would appear as a line item on each ticket for the entire year. This year it read, Hawaii, 23 cents. She was not rich by any stretch, but she was happy. She liked to feed people, and she liked to cook. She also had a soft spot, which she tried to cover up, but was there anyway. The young woman she was talking to was, whether she knew it or not, standing right on Doris's soft spot and making it ache. She was so thin, painfully thin. And when she got off the bus asking if Doris was hiring, she had a hunted look in her eyes that meant trouble, trouble, trouble. Too late to hide the help wanted sign in the window, so she shrugged. The girl said she could cook and work, and Doris believed it because her hands were calloused and she had that no-nonsense look that capable people have. She told the girl the wage, adding, This is a small town. A dime is considered a big tip by some of these folks. The girl shrugged and asked if she could be paid in cash once a week, which made Doris absolutely certain that she was trouble and positively certain she would be gone in a few days. She folded her arms across her thick chest. What's your name? The girl closed the deal by evading the answer. You can call me Claire. Chapter 8 Hal from the Gazette Hal was impressed. He'd never seen a presentation that elaborate. Usually any press conference he was invited to involved a few blueprints or maybe a packet of information handed around. This one was definitely top shelf. The woman with the artsy triangle glasses did a heck of a job, and for a while he felt the pride South Dakotans seldom feel. It was a beautiful place, South Dakota was. He'd thought so when he first moved here out of college. Hal was from Connecticut, an Ivy Leaguer who had the talent and connections to be anywhere, but there he was. When pressed about it, he found the answer hard to explain. At first, he'd simply had curiosity and a soft spot for Western movies, but then it changed. Most other states boasted about their status, the don't-mess-with-Texas bravado, but not here. In every circumstance, when people found out where he was from, they asked, What are you doing here? Genuinely puzzled. This hard-bitten humility, 
driven home by years of economic decay and brutal weather, was coupled with a toughness that got underneath his skin and made him swell with pride when he saw the scenery roll across that screen. Was that Sam Elliott's voice? Of course, Hal had seen scenery like this on many mornings, the kind they put on travel posters. And then his inner cynic tripped him up. Why such a big deal? The luster started to fade the more he thought about it. Even though his thirty-five years in journalism had been spent mainly in and around dancing, he could recognize a fix when he saw one. Too nice. Too perfect. Too much like a dream come true for a town that was dying. Yeah, and far too expensive. He gave a small sigh. At any rate, he was not going to be the one to ruin anybody's dreams, not because he was against ruining dreams per se, mainly because he did not want to be the bearer of bad news, the guy they hated for uncovering the truth. He had a lot of friends in town, and the fact of the matter was he liked it there. No, things looked fishy for sure, but he was not going to be the one to ask obvious questions. Besides, maybe, maybe it might happen. That that Ted Turner was buying up a lot of land in the Dakotas? Maybe it's the same kind of deal. He was mulling over what angle to use for the story when he saw Stan, the small, intense reporter who worked at the radio station, stand up. Oh, no. Hal tried to catch his eye. Sit down, Stan. No need to say something stupid. He sighed again. He really didn't know Stan that well. If he wants to get the whole town pissed off at him, I guess he can have at it. At least it's going to be interesting. So that is episode two of Dead Air. So when I was writing Dead Air, I was struck with uh, making South Dakota one of its characters. Uh, South Dakota is a beautiful place, and it has one major news story which has never been covered for the last 70 years, and I thought I would cover it in this book. That is the death of small towns. If you were to look at a map of South Dakota and the census taken, say, in 1930-1940, you would see that the population of the state has not really grown that much since World War II. It simply is people migrating away from small towns and moving into bigger towns along its two interstate systems. And every other town is dying. It's a sad story. You drive across the state and you'll see what certainly was somebody's dream. A farm built not that long ago, now collapsing into the soil, beaten down by the weather and the wind and the sun. And you just wonder what those people thought when they first put that uh, soil to the plow. The climate of South Dakota and really all the western states is not suitable to traditional agriculture, a lesson that was learned the hard way and I cover in other chapters in the book. But I wanted to also talk about the grit of the people who live here. There is something about surviving that gives you a certain character and grit that is undeniable. 
And I know, I know that every state says that their people are friendly. But it is true, if you were to talk to tourism boards, that the state that has the friendliest people is South Dakota. Maybe it's because uh, there's not that many people in the state. But it is true that in South Dakota, it is not uncommon for them to drive miles out of their way, just follow me, and lead people to where they need to go. That sort of friendly, take care of visitors attitude is, is true to the Midwest and especially true in South Dakota. So I thought I would pay homage to that. Thanks for listening to this serialized episode of Dead Air brought to you on I Like That Story. I'm Jeff Gould, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.